Acts chapter 12. Please flip there or scroll there, whatever you do. Tap there. If you've memorized the entire Bible, recollect it in your mind. <laughs> That'd be a pretty crazy feat to do that, right? I mean, uh, Acts chapter 12, we've been going through this book and just watching and, uh, this wonderful narrative unfold. And um, we're at a place where we'll, we'll see what happens to two particular individuals in the early church. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Okay, and so... Uh, that's not a pleasant verse by any means, right? And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him uh, to four squads of soldiers to guard him, in, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. And so the, Peter uh, was kept in the prison, but praying for him, uh, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put, your uh, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought uh, he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, of the Jewish people, uh, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Guess who they were praying for? They're praying for Peter, right? And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came, and answer, uh, came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't even open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. What a comical situation that's unfolding here. Huh? He kept on knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed, and he went to another place. And now, uh, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Amen. We'll stop there. Uh, at the outset, to me, this is somewhat comical, just understanding that the church is praying for Peter, and they don't even believe their own prayer, right? He's standing at the gate, 
and they're kind of insisting to the girl, you're just out of your mind, you're crazy, that's not him, you're seeing angels or ghosts or just these different presences. And finally, I mean, I don't know how long he's just banging on this gate door, right? And finally, they come to their senses and they realize that Peter is there. And so this is kind of unfolding. And as I see this great deliverance of Peter, uh, it seems at first glance to me that this passage is an easy passage to preach. I mean, we're talking about uh, God's power. We're talking about this miraculous deliverance of Peter and this great victory of the church. And it seems as though that that's very easy to preach on. We're preaching on that God can do all things, right? But as I layer this back a little bit, and as I begin to understand what happened before the deliverance of Peter, I begin to examine this part of this passage. It becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, my title will allude to it. Um, the worship of a Christian in the midst of not just deliverance, but in a season of death, in that darkest hour. Then could it be that in our darkest hour, the brilliance of God can shine even more brightly? Could it be? And this passage leads me to a place where I begin to examine myself and I find that I am pulled in a direction of comfort, of ease, and of blessing all too easily. Right? And I have to catch myself and say, wait a minute, there is a bigger picture and scope and landscape of the Christian faith that must go beyond just praying for deliverance and celebrating God in that great victory. And it brings me to the space where I realize that my worship of God must transcend so much more. Because as I think about it, you know, as much as we celebrate Peter's divine deliverance, I mourn James's unjust execution. We're talking about James, that the, 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 the son of Zebedee, right? James and John, that he was executed. And the king, Herod, he was like, wow, that, that pleases everybody. Everybody's happy about that. So he begins to go down the line. And Peter was next, right? Peter's fate was different, but James, he suffered an unjust death. And if I was the family member of Peter, I'd be shouting for joy, right? I'd be exuberant. I'd be triumphant, I'd be thankful, I'd be filled with happiness and just so much, so much uh, promise and hope. But if I'm a family member of James, I'm exhausted, I'm hurt, maybe even doubtful. And so you can see that if you were connected to what happened to Peter, there was this great outcome uh, and this cry of joy and celebration of victory. But if you just focus on James for a second and what happened in that moment and what brought joy to the masses, brought heartache to the church, Peter, a leader, an influential one, one of the, the inner leaders of Jesus' uh, disciples, we see him being executed, being put to death by a sword. That means his head was chopped off and most likely displayed for all to see. And you're thinking to yourself, uh, how do we find joy in this moment? How do we find worship to God? I know I pray to God for mercy, but in this moment of execution, how do I find any sanity, any peace or calm and we're, we're caught in this dichotomy, this balance, this contrast. And I begin to realize all the more the Christian life is all about balance. That there's contrast. And I see that suffering is the antithesis of salvation. 
of deliverance. That as I look at the Bible and how God portrays faith, you see that there is both death and life. You see that there is both light and darkness. You see that there is both crucifixion and glorification, sickness and healing. That there seems to be both. And how do I, in my worship of God, maintain this calm, this strength, this consistency in my worship to God, regardless of death or deliverance, good or evil, lack or plenty, sickness or healing? How do I begin to understand that? And I begin to see in Scripture that God wants my worship of Him to be unhinged, from circumstance. And what do I mean by that? Like, you know, like a door, right? If it's hinged to it, it's connected to the wall, right? And it can only move according to the wall, right? It's, it's swung open or slammed shut. But when you unhinge the door, it's free. And we realize in Scripture that God wants my worship to be unhinged, to be taken off of, not uh, dependent upon circumstance. The joy of the moment or the heartache of it. That whether in the brilliant hour or darkest moment, that there is something that can resound in my heart and it's worship. And it doesn't necessarily mean a shout for joy because there is a place for mourning in the Christian life. But we're talking about the presence of a deep heart of worship and how it should remain in those seasons, in in both of those ideas of, of contrast. And so I share this first point um, with humility um, and just realizing how hard it is for me to really grab a hold of this. And I, I want to say that heaven is our only assured reward. And this is hard for me to say because in the Christian life, I mean, I ask God for good things, right? I mean, uh, there are, 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 are words and petitions in my prayers that are filled in asking God for good things for my life, my family, our church, our children, the things that I do. And, and I want those rewards. I, I want those blessings in life. And, and there are many parts of the Bible that point to those things. I mean, as I look at Scripture, Matthew 7, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more is your Heavenly Father going to give you what is good if you ask of Him? And so God wants to give us so many good things. And he compares, wait a minute, you as evil human fathers can give good gifts to your children. And me as a perfect heavenly father, that much more, I'm going to give you good stuff. I mean, I relate to this. I want to give good, kid, good things to our boys. I mean, uh, when, I, when I buy something and I, and I look at it and I look at something that's kind of just a quality, it's like half there, and look at something that's good quality, I want to give what's better to the boys. When I buy food for them, I want to give them the better portion. When I buy them an athletic piece of equipment, I want to get them something that's going to perform well, even at such a young age. You think, they're six, he's six. I mean, he can't really use that really well, right? But nonetheless, I want to give him what is good. How much more, he's saying, God, how much does he want to give you what is good for your life? Right? James 1, every good thing bestowed And every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights. And there's no shifting with Him. He doesn't change. The goodness that He portrayed in the life of Israel, giving them the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey, is the same God that wants to give us lands of promise today. 
The same God that delivered Daniel from the, the lion's den or Esther from the hand of persecution. The same God that provided through his children all throughout every generation is the same God that wants to give good and perfect gifts to us. And so in boldness, I can come before God and say, God, would you grant us good things? Would you give my family good gifts? Right? In boldness, I can, I can say that because scripturally, that's what God wants. In Ephesians 3, God can do even more than I ask. I mean, this is one of the greatest promises, right? Even what you cannot fathom or articulate yourself, God can do that even more, right? He'll do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask of Him. Now, this we must take into the perspective that it's not just always the, the better thing in our eyes because what is exceedingly abundantly beyond in God's eyes can take a different trajectory, a different plane, a different understanding. But He can do so much. But we must realize that do I love the, the hand of the giver or the giver Himself? Do I love what God can give me or do I love Him for who He is? That becomes the challenge of every child to the adults in their lives, right? And they're overjoyed when these adults and parents and, and figures bestow good things upon them. And when they take those away, suddenly that joy, I love you, Dad, seems to evaporate ever so quickly. Right? And so how do we begin to value the giver more than what he gives? And we come to a passage like we find in Colossians where it says, For by Him all things were created. Everything that I know, whether in the heavens or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, that all things have been created by Him and for Him. So not only did He author it, He's actually at the end of it saying, Okay, it's coming back to me. right? And so it's by Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And when, when I begin to ask the question, how does my life hold together? How does my joy or my hope stay together? How do I not let it crumble or crack under pressure or hardship? It's because in Christ, all things hold together. That if my faith is placed in Him, and I believe that my life is from Him and for Him, that there is a sense of stability, concreteness to that declaration. That I'm able to weather the storms and the sunshine. I'll be able to glorify God for success and stay humble in the midst of suffering. That there is an understanding that all of my life is held together in Him. That includes my joy and my hope. You know, the most famous verse probably in Scripture is John 3.16, right? I mean, people quote that, you know, whether you're Christian or not. Everybody knows that verse, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that he who believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't that frame the gospel for us? Doesn't that frame our hope, right? That God loves you, that He loves me, right? And that He gave me His most precious Son, His only Son, and that if I believe in Him, I could have eternal life. And so this frames the gospel in a way, in its most basic way, right? If you think about the blessing of believing in Jesus, we don't see prosperity here, right? What God is pointing faith in Christ to is not earthly blessing. What He's saying is, I love you, I give you my Son, I want you to believe in Him, and if you do, the greatest thing that you can have in life, the greatest thing I want to point you towards, what I want your eyes to fixate on, is eternal life. Heaven. 
And I want you to see that beyond all other things. Everything else needs to begin to fade and pale in comparison because it's, it's what it's about. But how easily my eyes fade from this, right? I mean, how easily we begin to see, you know, that one song that we sang, um, uh, May I never lose the wonder of your mercy. May I never lose the wonder. You know, when you come to faith in Christ and there is such wonder in being forgiven and we have these great ideas and pictures of what heaven will be like, right? And in a sense, maybe it's like buying a new car or getting a new computer or moving into a new house or getting a, a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse, right? In the beginning, it has all of this shine and luster. Like, wow, great, I love it. And it has a wonder to it. But after some time, maybe, it begins to lose its luster. It's not as shiny and sleek anymore, right? But when, we, when it comes to faith in Christ and what heaven is, may it never lose the grasp of our heart, the hunger of our desire. May it never lose that wonderment, the thrill, the joy of what it means to be called a child, promised eternal life, and one day we'll be with Him forever. That is the only assured reward in the Christian life. Yes, God will give us many good things, and He wants to. But when it comes to what we fixate our true hope in the Christian life about, what brings us true eternal joy, and it must be a picture of what heaven is, that that draws us. The pinnacle statement of a Christian, I think, can be this, right? Like, what is the, the, the greatest thing that you can live by? I would say this is, ranks right up there, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. But I know that if I were to die by whatever means, that is my gain. If I'm breathing, I'm breathing for Christ. If I'm no longer breathing, it's much better for me. That, that brings peace. That, that unhinges us from circumstance, doesn't it? What he says later in this book to the Philippians, this letter, in chapter 4, one of the other famous verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians 4.13. That is so misquoted, right? We use that verse to, to say that, oh, I, we're like going to uh, try to push a boulder. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And the context of that is about how he lives. And he was talking about how the Philippians were so uh, generous in supporting his ministry. But he wasn't looking to that that I've learned to be content in every circumstance of life, whether well-fed or hungry, whether clothed or naked. It does not matter the circumstance of my life, and I want you to know that my joy is not dependent upon this gift that you give to support this ministry, because I want you to know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Doesn't that unhinge us from circumstance? Doesn't that put us squarely on the grace of God in knowing that heaven is my assured reward that does not matter what happens to my body, whether James in that execution or Peter in that deliverance, that there is joy in both, that there is glory in both. There is hope in both. And this is why this passage becomes so difficult for us, for me, to live by, to understand. Can I ask you to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 4? You can go there. First Corinthians chapter 4. I just want to read a passage here.
This passage that I, that I want to share with you really touches me um, in terms of pastoral type ministry and the words that I uh, could and should counsel, console, and lead uh, you with. The beginning part of chapter 4, I won't read it all. Um, I'm not going to read it all. Um, it talks about how, how Paul was uh, looked down upon in his leadership by the Corinthian Christians. And he was just kind of just talking about how they were looking down upon his uh, apostolic authority even, maybe his living conditions, how he was. And uh, I, I want to pick it up in verse 9. And in response to this sentiment of how he was living and the portrayal of his leadership in life, this is what he says. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. And when we become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, and I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. This passage here, it really speaks of Paul's heart. And he's looking at the Christians in Corinth. And yes, they might have shunned him, looked down upon him for whatever reasons. And in their minds, the Christian life was filled with prudence, distinguishment, honor. There were a lot of good things in the Christian life, and rightly so. And how Paul was contrasting that. He's saying everything that they were and everything that he wasn't, him and the apostles. And at the end of this, he's saying, you know what? If I was just like this tutor, like many of you have, I might just speak these nice, common things to you. But I want to be a spiritual father to you. And I want to tell you what's really important. And I want you to imitate the life that we're, leaving, that we're leading. I want you to know that there is a plane in the Christian life that goes beyond the distinguishment and honor and blessings. And there is that realm and place of following God and Christ and knowing that though I can be slandered, persecuted, and considered a scum and a dreg of the world, that that's worth imitating. That there is a place in, in worship and there is a place of faith in my heart that goes beyond those things. And he speaks to them as this spiritual father. In a second letter that he wrote, in 2 Corinthians, you know, he says this, verse chapter 4. He says, don't lose heart. 
though the outer man decays, though it rots, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so he's helping them again. Don't focus on what's happening on the outside. Begin to fixate what's happening on the inward side of your life. Momentary light affliction. <laughs> those, are some, those are some interesting adjectives there, momentary and light. You read chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. It talks about how he's shipwrecked, hungry, naked, nearly dead, stoned. He talks about all of the things, the hardships that he went through as a person. And he says, momentary. I mean, I choose some different set of words to describe what I went through in life, those afflictions. And he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And he's got these scales, what happens to us on the earth and the glory and the weight of heaven. He says it just pales. It doesn't even compare. Right? These are some light things. Death, hunger, nakedness, shipwreck, stoning. These are light things. Because what's on the other side of this scale is something really, really heavy. Talking about a weight of glory in heaven. And if you got this on this side of the scale, you can put anything else on the other side. Losing health, job, people, whatever you put over here, it's still not even going to tip the scales. But you have to have this weight. You have to have this on this side. It has to anchor your life. And when it does, nothing rocks you. And then he goes on. While we look not to the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen, those other things that we can put on this side of the scale, it's all temporary, he says. But the things which are not seen, that's the eternal stuff. That's the weighty stuff. And so when we get our eyes fixated on what is eternal, we begin to have an anchor through the roughest waves. And that's what I wish for us. And just quickly, the last Second point is this. There is nothing that God cannot do. And you look to the passage in Acts 12, right? Peter's delivered by this angel. He's like, in the middle of the night, just this angel knocks him and says, hey, get up. <laughs> like, Whoa. And you think he's in a dream right now. It's just a vision. And he's startled and he gets up. He girds himself, puts his cloak back on, puts his sandals on, and he follows the angel. Everywhere he goes, just doors just opening, just magically, right? What's going on here? And he finally gets out and he's like, whoa, this is not a dream. <laughs> he rushes to the house of Mary, knocks on the door, and as the encounter was read, this was unbelievable. The church was praying for it. They didn't even believe what they're praying for. Has that ever, have you ever done that? You know, you prayed for something, but you didn't really believe that it would happen. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's get honest, right? That's, that happens to us a lot, right? And that's what's happening to the church. They're praying for it. Deliver Peter, and he's delivered, waiting, and he's just knocking at the door, <laughs> waiting for somebody to open. Right? Uh, but God can do all things. And I want us to get that. That we need to ask ourselves, what's my dilemma? What's my hardship? The Bible says ask, seek, knock. I close, come back. The first thing that I want to say in closing is your worship must transcend feelings and circumstances. It must get beyond it. It doesn't say it's not there, feelings and circumstances, right? Because it is there. It would be ignorant to say that those feelings and circumstances don't exist. 
But my faith must arrive at a place where it unhinges from that and it goes beyond. And I got that weight on this side of the scale that anchors my life. That's first. And the second is this. Even though that's the case, expect miracles. Why? God can do all things. Pray as though God can do anything, but be content even if He didn't do one more thing. That's a mindset. A frame of reference for my faith. God, you can do all things. I believe it. I'm going to pray as though you can do all things. But if you did not do one more thing, I want you to know that my worship is intact. My eyes are fixated and it's founded on the right thing. Amen? Amen.